A remote fantastical kingdom far from Europe's chancelleries of power. An ancient castle where secrets are walled up. An unpopular monarch on the eve of his coronation. A ruling class of plotters and would-be usurpers. And a gentleman adventurer on holiday. No, not Ruritania in the 19th century, but the United Kingdom in the 21st. Stein's new book, The Prisoner of Windsor, is a contemporary inversion of Anthony Hope's classic, The Prisoner of Zender. In the original, an English gentleman on vacation is called upon to stand in for his lookalike, the King of Ruritania, at his coronation. Over a century later, a Ruritanian on vacation in London is called upon to return the favour and stand in for an Englishman in an absurd, fantastical kingdom where Brexit never quite happened. Plots are afoot. The Prisoner of Windsor by Mark Stein. Available in hardback and digital editions or for a personally autographed copy, go to steinonline.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. It is 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 4 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past four in Newfoundland and beyond the Americas. 8 p.m. in London, Dublin, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiev. That was a lame one. 10 p.m. in Kiev and Moscow. Now in the same time zone, if not the same country, 10.30 in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who move to Iran for the half-hour time zone. Midnight 45 in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who move to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 3 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. I'm sorry about that. 5 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. Still kind of sorry. 7 a.m. in Auckland and a somewhat more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific. 400 years ago today, May 19th, 1623, Maryam Uz Zamani, the longest-serving Hindu empress of the Mughal Empire, died in Agra. She was the principal Rajput wife and favourite missus of the third Mughal emperor, Akbar. He regarded her as uncommonly beautiful with a strong and sinuous body that he called, quote, a piece of the moon. Mariam was an influential consort and a successful businesswoman, and upon her death four centuries ago today, she was entombed in a mausoleum directly next to and almost as grand as 
that of her husband, Emperor Akbar. A rare honour for a mere consort. If you are ever in Uttar Pradesh in India, it's worth a trip. Also, today is the birthday of my former GB News colleague, Loza. Uh, the birthday of Loza's dad, James Fox, a terrific actor. If you've never seen The Servant with James and Dirk Bogard, Wendy Craig, Sarah Miles, treat yourself. The Servant. Loza's pa is brilliant in it. Happy birthday, James Fox. What was, without doubt, the least important news story anywhere on the planet this last week? No contest, the Durham report. Oh, wait, sorry, I didn't do that right. The Durham report! The Durham report! The Durham report! Did the earth move for you too, baby? The Durham report. It is four years, four years since John Durham was appointed in April 2019 uh, to investigate the shenanigans of the 2016 election. Uh, So he took rather longer to investigate them than they did to do them. And he produced a report uh, that doesn't have anything you couldn't have found out from reading what I was writing back in whatever it was, 2018, watching my interview with uh, uh, George Papadopoulos. Um, And whatever that piece was, Tinker Taylor, Halper, Clapper, Tinker Taylor, Clapper, Halper, Down a Spy or whatever it was called. (laughs) I can't even be bothered looking it up. Um. As I said, April 2019, and almost immediately I started doing my... I can't even do the voice now because of my heart attacks. The Durham Report. I started doing that, mocking it, because there they all were on bloody Hannity every night. Is that true? Hannity's supposed to be replacing Tucker's show because Tucker didn't waste his time doing reports on the Durham Report every night. The Rube Wright in America... Okay, so you're what I can't get. There are even people at the commenting at this website. There's a whole big bunch of when the Durham report. Hold the Durham report. It's out. Store. Hold the front page. No, no, no. Don't hold the front page. Hold page seven hundred and forty-three, the bottom of it. That's how important this is. There's people. I've been making jokes about the Durham report. I'm never playing that again. By the way, Durham doesn't merit the. Uh, or, 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 or orgasmic ululating of Jane Burke in there. Doesn't merit it. And I was doing that to show nothing. To, I was doing this April 2019, shortly thereafter, on Rush and on Tucker 
and right here to show that this, you know, this is a crock. It's fake. It's phony. And yet when it comes out, even commenters at this website expect me to treat it as real. Astonishing. Astonishing. I've got a question here. There have been, I've had a few questions about the Durham report. You know, what is this one here? Tom Lewis says, does the fact that the Durham report has <laughs> predictably yielded no... I mean, how... I'm not even going to play... It's unfair to Roger Whittaker to play my Durham town song. I'm going to read old Durham soon. I'm going to read old Durham soon. I'm going to... Mama told me he would get him for sure. He would get him... Call me Clapper, Brennan, Struck, and Steel. <laughs> now I'm going to read. He doesn't, the Durham Report doesn't even deserve a song that good. Don't, don't put, Durham time, Durham came out two minutes ago. Why haven't you said anything about it? Because, as I said, it's the least important news story on the planet. You know, the rubrite in America needs to get something into its head. America is corrupt. You know, you can complain about the governments that they elect in uh, Norway or Denmark, uh, Sweden, uh, Belgium, but they come by their socialist basket cases relatively honestly. America is corrupt. And that's something I know well after whatever it is now, 12 years in the crap hole of justice, the District of Columbia Superior Court, it's corrupt. That's the central of the feature of it. So there's no point wasting your time on commentary that does not attend to the central fact of America in the year 2023. It's god-awful stinking corruption. So anyway, Tom Lewis says, does the fact that the Durham reporters predictably yielded no indictments show that Attorney General Bob Barr was part of the cover-up? Your thoughts? I don't have any thoughts. I take it as read and have taken it as read from the, you know, the, 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 the reason Trump is out of office is because of the corruption. The reason Trump had uh, basically got two years out of his four-year term is because he was hobbled by the corruption. He made terrible personnel decisions. It didn't matter whether you appointed Democrats or Republicans or whatever. They all screwed him over um, because he didn't have anybody else to hand. Bob Barr is part of Permanent Washington, and Permanent Washington was... Um, never a, a fan of the president. And what Bob, as I said, all of this was known. The Russian thing was a hoax. All of it was known. It will never be known to half the American people, by the way. They'll go to their graves believing that Donald J. Trump is a Russian agent. Uh, and, and the Durham report has come out and nobody's, you know, the only people who've reported it have been the Rube Wright because it isn't even talked about. And and again, they make the mistake of, of talking about it as if it's something real. It's not. It's, it was an invest... And, and again, 
The rube right in America. I mean, for God's sake, will you guys get real? You're losing your bloody country. So here we are. Oh, the Durham report's come out. The Durham report, the Durham report, the Durham report. Uh, it's all about, what's it about, the Durham report? Is that the Durham report by Lord Durham on uh, on uh, responsible uh, government in British North America, the one that led to uh, decolonization uh, and a responsible government, first for Nova Scotia and then on every corner of the globe uh, into the 1980s, 1990s? I can't remember what was the last... The, uh, I think it might be the Falkland Islands um, was the last to get a uh, a constitution. And that's basically all from what Lord Durham did two centuries ago. But this Durham report is is a f- big joke. And again, it's got everybody excited. Oh, we're, oh, we've investigated what the, 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 the Democrat subversion of the 2016 election... Meanwhile, Democrats are moving on, as I said the other day, to steal the 2024 election. Which, uh, which strategy makes more sense? The Durham report. I'm discuss- I'm not. D- Durham doesn't merit Jane Birkin's orgasm. It doesn't merit Roger Whittaker's Durham town. Uh, so I'm not. <laughs> Is that the only question we got on the Durham report? I'm moving on. I'll tell you something. I said today. Somewhere, where did I say it today? I, anyway, I said something somewhere today. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to try and make it through to the top of the hour. I'm not feeling great, to be honest. I've got a few vocal problems. Um, but as you know, the totalitarian goons of Ofcom have chosen to pick a fight with me and with the fearless Naomi Wolf. So we're going to fight back. Their two judgments against me are illegal, uh, are without evidence, are an abuse of due process. Although due process isn't a really a, a uh, an English uh, concept. What are they? They've got something similar. What do they call it? Anyway, and it's in breach of both Magna Carta and the European Convention of Human Rights. I'm just warming up, just clearing my throat. But as you know... Last Friday, my solicitors sent a letter to Ofcom uh, basically asking them to reverse their decision and to respond by the close of business today. Uh, It's now a little after 8 o'clock. It's about 8.15 Greenwich Mean Time, uh, British Summertime in London. Uh, And they sent earlier today, they sent a pathetic letter, a stalling letter asking for more time. And uh, I've said, up yours, and uh, we're uh, filing first thing on Monday morning. Uh, We apparently have to wait till Monday morning if it's close of business on Friday. We're filing my statement of claim against them. So it's on, and I'm looking forward to it uh, in the King's Bench Division of the English High Court, (laughs) of which Elisa Angel says, is the King's Bench Division of the High Court stacked with Ofcom sympathisers? Will you be pleading your case to a reasonable judge? I think there's something like 70 judges in in the King's Bench Division of the High Court. There's 70 High Court judges, so in theory they should be uh, better uh, they should be pretty good judges. They're not as I don't I don't really know. I've been it's a long time since I've fought a big case 
in uh, well any kind of case really uh, in in London, and so it, I'm interested to I'll be interested to find that out. If we lose, uh, we'll follow the appeal process. If necessary, we'll go all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights. I'm ish. I'm interested in actually uh, teaching Ofcom that. You can't just do this, that uh, that serious people who value their reputation and who value actually justice, uh, when you're uh, taken to the cleaners by stupid pseudo tribunals that are a perversion of justice, uh, you've got to at least get them into a real court and see how real judges decide about these things. Uh, Sean says... Mark, did you give GB News an opportunity to join in your suit against Ofcom or did you not bother knowing they were a hopeless cause? Well, since we got the letter today, um, you know, there's been a bit of back and forth because we're working on the statement of claim because it's going to be delivered at 9 a.m. on Monday. And on the, at the top of the statement, it says whatever it is, you know, Stein versus Ofcom. But then it also says... Uh, GB News interested party. And in theory, they ought to be an interested party because they're the license holder. And so they're the ones at fault. I'm just collateral. I mean, one of the evil things about the system is that Naomi Wolf and I can be defamed by a government agency without ever having the right to confront our accusers. Uh, or to submit any kind of defense of our own, because the wankers at GB News, what's the name of that wanker, by the way? Well, there's several wankers there. There's Nick Wanker Pollard, there's Mick Wanker Booker, and there's Angelus Wanker Flopadopoulos. Uh, None of them actually gave us uh, an opportunity to to defend ourselves directly to Ofcom, and Ofcom doesn't. So Ofcom gets to defame and slander you, and certainly in my case and in Naomi's. You know, if if uh, both of us were to be hit by a truck now, the first lines of the obituaries in The Guardian and The Independent and probably even The Telegraph was that we'd just been, quote-unquote, found guilty by Ofcom. Well, found is a legal term. So the traditional protections afforded to a defendant ought to be there for them. So we're going to go there to G- where GB News isn't interested. Uh, so they're not going to be part of this. Uh, they're very happy doing their Tories and trivia uh, format. They seem to think it's working for them, and it's well, it's pretty spectacular. I mean, I think, as I pointed out the other day, I think on Wednesday uh, at whatever it was, 3.45, they had 1,200 viewers. That's not just, by the way, 1,200 viewers in Wales or maybe Guernsey. That's 1,200 viewers in England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and the Crown Dependencies, uh, I take it. But it doesn't really matter. What is that? 1,200? 12, so that's maybe 800 uh, for uh, England and uh, then 200 for Scotland and 100 apiece for Northern Ireland and Wales. Yeah, that's terrific. It's really working out for them. Uh, uh, Alison Castellina says, uh, do you regard pinning down how Ofcom defines harm as crucial? 
Adults are not children, and children too have reason and discernment. We have inbuilt receptors for testing truth unless we are being lied to or manipulated. Just because something is, quote, on the telly does not mean people believe it, even from a figure of authority, and particularly not now. Don't we protect ourselves from harm, lies, half-truth by arguing back, walking out, or simply pressing the off button? Well, the interesting thing is that uh, they have actually redefined harm uh, Ofcom in ways that I've... I mean, I don't think... As I said, we've said this thing is illegal. And one of the bases for that is that they basically chosen... They, they exist at the discretion of Parliament, and, and there's a statute that says what their powers are, and we think they have defined them to the point where what they're doing now is illegal. But in order to find me harmful on the theory, as they do, that uh, persuading people not to get the booster shot, which was the subject of the first show, the third COVID shot, that persuading people not to get the booster shot uh, is harmful to them. Uh, to do that, you would have to introduce evidence that the third booster shot had benefits. And the assholes of Ofcom did not do that. Uh, so uh, so uh, there is an evidentiary hole in their findings. Uh, and we will be happy to... Uh, they can't prove uh, any benefits from the third booster, from the booster the third COVID shot, they can't find any scientific evidence to support the proposition that <clears throat> not getting the third booster shot, the third shot would be harmful to you. Uh, Jeff says, I'm not surprised at Ofcom's unsatisfactory response and confess I am surprised they answered at all. Their arrogance and lack of self-awareness Knows no bounds, but are they about to get a wake-up call? Are you able to elaborate at all on what they said in their response? Well, the response was just a joke. They didn't even say, oh, well, unfortunately, Dame Melanie had a hernia operation three, three days ago, so we need to wait until she's back up to speed. And, and I'm sorry, but uh, Lord, Lord Grade uh, got one of the curlers stuck in his hair while he was uh, shampooing his hair, so he's going to have to. They didn't do that. They just said, uh, we'll have, can we, we're going to take another week. They didn't ask to take another week. They just said, we're going to take another week. Well, sorry, up yours, Ofcom. We're off to court. So it doesn't, you don't need to bother. You don't need to bother uh, with whatever crappy letter you were going to send. We're off, you, you, uh, you, you missed the deadline, we're off to court. Up yours. Sandra Robinson says, Hi, Mark, I didn't think that Ofcom would be able to provide a quality response and withdraw its complaint. I did think that the elite Great Reset would accelerate, as it has noticed the stirring, flinching, very useful democratic billions of people on Earth. As it is so self-preserving and acquisitive, I suspect they are worried that pandemics, experimental vaccines, mandates, lockdowns and euthanasia are not depleting the world's useless feeders quick enough for them and are now going for the farms, meaning no food, no people, and they're hot-wiring their juggernaut ASAP. Tonight, 
I'm hoping my lottery ticket will mean I can buy land and farms before Bill Gates blobs another petri dish. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. I was enjoying that too much, Sadva. Yes, indeed. I mean, this is a very... <clears throat> they, what they did to me is a small part of what... Just, I need to take some... I was laughing. Enjoying Sandra's letter too much. They are all in on protecting the 2020 narrative. And they can do that, and maybe they'll find some judge to support their doing that. But that judge will have to twist himself into a pretzel to follow the logic of Ofcom's uh, decision against uh, against me. Uh, I tell you what, let's take our uh, little musical respite. I've got a bit of a problem with my voice. Let's take a bit of a musical respite uh, a, a little earlier than we usually do, just a minute or two earlier. Um, oh, you're going to love this one. Do you follow Balkan? pop music, Balkan pop music. The Croat pop star Yasmin Stavros died earlier this month in Zagreb at the age of 68. He had a lot of hits. Uh, I've always quite liked his song, A Dalmatian Man and a Slavonian Woman. Hey, you know how that goes. Uh, As I said, I liked it, but it's probably not the best title if you're looking to have a hit in the US. This was his blockbuster. In fact, it came back uh, in a, I think they call it a club mix, and it was a hit all over again just a couple of years ago. In the 80s, just before Yugoslavia fell apart and Croatia was reborn, uh, Mr. Stavros was living in America and feeling a little homesick, and he wrote a song called Da Obisto America. I would give a hundred Americas. I would give anything in the world. I'm going just to sit on the porch with a map and some bevanda. I'm counting the waves. I always like that couplet, um, if you'll forgive my Croatian pronunciation. Tek da sjednem navarandu pa uskata i bevandu. Bevanda is a popular drink in Dalmatia, a blend of wine and water. Uh, Anyway, this got to number two on the Yugoslav hit parade in 1989. Yasmin Stavros, Da Obisto Više ovdje ne znam Kaže mi Reci gdje su Nam prijatelji svi Pa kaže Da obisto Amerika Sve na svijetu ja bi dao Tek da sjednem na verandu Pa uz karte i bevandu Svijetu ja bi dao, tek da sjednem na 
kaže da malog zovuđim Da prozora kuća ima 22 Dobro živiš, čudim mu se ja Zagreb earlier this month and his Balkan blockbuster of 1989 Dao Bestow America I would give a hundred Americans number two on the Yugoslav hit parade there is no longer a Yugoslav hit parade because there is no longer a Yugoslavia but the song lives on We'll have more musical homesickness a little later for you. Yugoslavia is no longer with us, but the Dalmatian coast is, and Croatia and Montenegro are, and we're headed there. This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. Yeah, Dalmatia with Ava, Leilani, Alexandra and many more. You cannot beat that. We will be sure to have a glass or two of Bavanda uh, as we uh, as uh, as we're in port uh, in uh, in the Dalmatian portion of the cruise. I don't think I think they like something a little stronger in Montenegro and uh, I'm in favor of following local customs when it comes to alcoholic beverages. It is uh, just gone half past eight British summertime. It's uh, 28 to nine. Uh, a little behind, a lot ahead according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. Charlie Citrine writes... Uh, into our Clubland Q&A, live around the planet. On the 10th anniversary of Lee Rigby's murder, what are your views on the death penalty? This is Paul Drummer Rigby, a British soldier who was butchered in the street by a couple of Islamic reverts. I think at least one was from Nigeria. Uh, but uh, and was a Christian, but who had converted to Islam because it was way cooler and they made the best gangs. And they basically beheaded the poor, the poor man in the street. I can't believe it's been 10 years since Lee Rigby died. I, 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 I am 
so uh, affronted uh, at the way uh, or across the West we are expected to put up with this as just a feature of life. As Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, said, it's just the price of living in a great world city. And we have all these familiar stories, one not close to me, same kind of thing, uh, happened uh, just outside the uh, Royal Military College in Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu in Quebec, a, a street I drove down just the other day as I've driven down it. Uh, must be hundreds of times now in my life. Uh, and we're expected to put up with it. As just, Don't worry, there's not going to be too much of it. And yeah, it's tough if it happens to be your son or your husband who who happens to be the statistically insignificant person who gets killed. Anyway, 10 years since Lee Rigby died in broad daylight in a London street. Uh, I grind my teeth, says Charlie Citrine, thinking of his killers being kept alive in jail by my taxes, potentially radicalising or persecuting other inmates. Muslim prisoners now run UK jails. That is actually correct. They're called HMP, which means His Majesty's Prison, um, as they are elsewhere in the Commonwealth, but they're not His, His Majesty's. His Majesty's writ does not run, or if it does, it's only the Islamophiliac side of him. Uh, that runs in there. Muslim prisoners do run UK jails. Charlie Citrine continues, a constant danger to prison officers. I wonder how many delicate souls who find the death penalty uncivilized would volunteer to guard these psychopaths 24-7. And who knows, possibly being released on parole in a few short years to kill her again because they fooled some credulous psychologist into thinking they are reformed characters. Aside from all that, yeah, and again, that's not a joke. One of those London Bridge attacks, because uh, <laughs> you have to distinguish now, because the London Bridge attack is such a regular phenomenon of life that one comes along a couple of years after the first one. But one of those London Bridge attacks, the fellow who pulled it off had actually aced the de-radicalization course <laughs> And was uh, and had been allowed to travel up to London to testify about what a fabulous deradicalization program it was, and he killed uh, uh, he killed he, basically his teachers in the deradicalization program. Um, any, uh, Charlie Citrine, I must stop into interrupting Charlie's letter. Anyway, Charlie continues, aside from all that, their continued existence is a moral affront to me. If they want someone to open the hatch, I'm ready and willing. If there's one thing I can't stand, it's conservatives who advertise their opposition to the death penalty. Even Enoch Powell succumbed. I may be a conservative, but look how sensitive and morally sophisticated I am. If you were British, which you sort of are, well, <laughs> okay, man, one more interruption. Uh, the British Nationality Act made a quarter of the world's, in 1948, made a quarter of the world's population British subjects. I am one of those for the first years of my life. It was there in page three of my Canadian passport in thick, black, bold print. A Canadian citizen is a British subject. Um, if you were British, which you sort of are, and we had a referendum on bringing back capital punishment, which would, way would you vote? I would vote for it. I certainly think it's one of the tools 
that a justice system should have at hand, not in the American way, where it's a racket, where basically if you are sentenced to death, you know you've got 10, 20, 30 years on death row uh, before you've exhausted your appeals. I far prefer the system uh, that used to prevail in uh, the UK and elsewhere. It still does in uh, parts like the way they had in Singapore. Uh, in the early weeks of the COVID, they had the first guy sentenced to death on a Zoom call. And I was wondering whether the judge was uh, just sitting there in his pajamas or whether he actually had the black cap and put it on his head and directed that you be taken from here to a place of execution. I would certainly be, I'm certainly, I have no problem arguing with that. I think it's I think it's terrible to have uh, people. I, th- I think it. I think it's terrible to kill people and know that, uh, as uh, Charlie was saying, that if you play your cards right in prison, you'll be out in time to lead a full life. Uh, being convicted of murder should be an end uh, to to uh, to life. Um, so I would certainly vote in favour of restoring the death penalty. I don't have any problem with that. Uh, let's see where where we uh, what do we what else we got here. Michael Convino said, "Yes, the Durham report montage. Thank you, Mark. Perhaps Trump should sell autographed copies of the report as a fundraising gift. Yeah, maybe he should. It's a joke. There is no." There is no, again, I can't, you know, the stuff that Mark Levin says about the U.S. Constitution only applies if you think you're a constitutional republic still. Uh, And the stuff people say about this or that poll showing this or that candidate two points up in Iowa or New Hampshire only applies if you think this country has honest elections. Um, Talking about uh, you know, Hunter Biden's taxes is only interesting if you think the IRS is an honest revenue agency. It's not. Uh, it's not. And it hasn't been for many years now. And nor have we had an honest Department of Justice for many years now. These people, these people, these are state agencies that are supposed they've taken their oath to the Constitution, and in fact it's complete bollocks, and in reality they've taken an oath to the Democrat Party. They're on one side. So, you know, here's the question. Trump was supposedly the uh, head of the executive branch in the United States. That's what the president is. There's a separation of the executive branch the legislative branch and the judicial branch, and uh, in in the system from which you guys departed, uh, they're all unified. In Canada, uh, the executive branch is the king in council. The legislative branch is the king in parliament, and the judicial branch is the king on the bench. So the king's got a finger in all three pies. Here, the Democrat Party has a finger in all three pies. So so whoever's running the Democrat Party, whoever's waggling 
the dead husk of Joe Biden and Fetterman and Dianne Feinstein and all the other corpses uh, who are staggering around uh, claiming to be big, powerful Democrats. Whoever that person is, uh, is the equivalent of the king on the bench, the king in parliament and the king in council. Uh, as Trump discovered, and I hope he discovered it by the kind of third day or whatever it was, uh, he may be the nominal head of the executive branch, but uh, 90% of it goes along on its own merry way. And that is the issue. And if you don't talk about that, uh, if you don't talk about that, um, there's, there's, then you wind up with this straight. There's, there's basically two fantasies at the moment. If you watch the so-called mainstream media in America, CNN, MSNBC, the fantasy is that Joe Biden is the chief executive of the United States. As we know, he spends most of his time back in Delaware. He spent more time in Delaware than all the other American presidents put together. Uh, and uh, when he's he, so when you think he's working in the Oval Office, he's in fact asleep in the basement in Delaware. So you you have that's the left wing fantasy that Joe Biden is the duly elected and functioning chief executive of the United States. Then you listen to conservative radio. And theirs is the other fantasy, which this, this is a normal, healthy, civil society uh, with a, the same degree of election integrity and government agency integrity that you would find in, say, Denmark. It isn't. And it's a waste of time. As I said, you know, we don't do the talk radio thing here where you have all the butch music followed by the easy listening opinions. We have the easy listening music and then uh, the hardcore opinions. The central fact of the United States in 2023 is that it is a deeply corrupt society. And if you don't address that, and if you pretend that the Durham report is anything real, you're an arse who is contributing to the destruction of your country. Simon Arnold says, Hi, Mark. If Ofcom loses, what do you think will happen uh, regarding UK broadcasting? Well, I should say that the, the, case, the statement of claim we're going to file on Monday will, is, is for the first ruling against me. We have the, it's a very short, uh, what do they call it, statute of limitations that they have on uh, the, in this particular sphere. So it's only three months. So if you're going to act, you have to act quickly. Now, we know, obviously, <laughs> I'm a bit off statutes of limitations because, uh, as you know, in, in most things in America, I think it's about a year. It was certainly a year for Michael Mann to file his defamation suit against me in 2012. We still haven't gone to trial on that. <laughs> There's a reason for st statutes of limitations, because, you know, if you're going to do it, it should be done quickly. So we have another three months now to file a statement of claim on the second case, uh, ruling of Ofcom. That's the one that Naomi Wolf will be in with me on. And obviously, I think they'll then get folded into one uh, one case. I think were Ofcom to lose them, it would demonstrate that what, what astonishes me, 
I'll say this is that this is hugely damaging. It basically allows a rogue... And uh, just to be clear, you know, the old joke about being uh, judge and jury, that's what Ofcom is, right? Now, I've I've pissed all over the Canadian human rights tri tribunals and the Canadian human rights commissions, but at least the commission is the prosecutor and the tribunal is the judge. Here, Ofcom get to be both. So I think this is actually worse than the Canadian uh, human rights racket. And I'll give you another example of how it's worse. Their decisions are anonymous. So Naomi and I have been convicted by a judge whose name we do not know. Uh, people have filed freedom of information requests to discover... Who exactly? So Ofcom ruled against. Ofcom's found Stein guilty. Ofcom has convicted Naomi Wolf. Who the hell is Ofcom? Ofcom isn't a isn't a person. Who are these judges? But as in North Korea, the judges operate in the dark, and you do not find justice there. So I think if they were to lose both, Simon, I think that would be a big setback. I'm astonished at how rarely presenters in particular or the interviewee such as Nami ever pushes back against these things. Because if either Nami or I were resident in the UK, this would finish us off. It's only because neither of us are that we're still kicking. Um, so so uh, I'm astonished at how few prese presenters, basically, who are always the victims of this. There was a guy called John Gaunt. He, as far as I can tell, he was the last guy to push back against Ofcom. Uh, and he pushed back and, uh, uh, and ultimately lost. Uh, but good for him for having a go, because he, it wasn't the strongest case, but basically it cost him his gig at LBC. So, you know, it's very easy for the license holder to respond by firing the presenter who has had no say in the defense. I think if some if a presenter, which is what I am in for the purposes of this case, were to actually push back, it would strike a huge blow for uh, freedom of speech in Britain and which is the real the only reason I'm doing this is because they happen to come after me not because of something I said about you know Ukraine or China or the European Union they happen to come after me on the single biggest issue on which the crappy UK media like the crappy European media and the crappy Australian media and the crappy Canadian and American media has totally failed the citizenry, which is the, which is the, the last three years of the COVID era. So unless someone actually tries to restore freedom of speech on the very subject of the last three years, the central subject of the last three years, we're going to be in it's whatever they decide to do to us next, whatever they're cooking up in the Wuhan Institute of Virology right now, it's going to be the same thing all over again. So I would like to loosen up UK broadcasting. I would like to, and I tell you, the first thing I'm going to do if I were to win these cases is I'm going to uh, I'm going to demand. 
a a rewrite of the law, uh, dramatically circumscribing the powers that Ofcom has. You know, I'm in the. I don't. I got the law repealed in Canada. I've got an. As I said last week, I think I've got just about enough puff in me for one last big campaign. And the COVID years have been a disgrace, an absolutely disgraceful performance by government, uh, which across the planet has, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Fauci in uh, in America or Professor Pantsdown in England uh, or the, uh, the uh, lady in Canada, all these people, the surrender of the citizens' freedom to figures that cannot be voted out in any polling booth on earth has been disastrous for liberty in the Western world. Perla, who is one of our Swedish uh, members, uh, I think she's somewhere, uh, let me see if I can work this out, I think south east of Stockholm on the beautiful Baltic coast. Pearl, actually, that's one part of... I, I know lots of bits of Sweden very well. As you know, before the COVID, I used to go to Malmo every couple of years and I uh, go to Östersund for a particular reason and Gothenburg and places. But uh, this is uh, one corner of Sweden I don't know that well. But Perla says, what do you call a country that through their state broadcaster send radio programs with titles? <laughs> Can we all be as healthy and vigorous as Joe Biden without even a drop of irony? Uh, Perla says, wrong answers only, please, as the right one is New Zealand. And uh, Radio New Zealand, RNZ's program, Nights with Karen Hay. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> uh, Night with Karen Hay must be extremely hallucinatory. Can we all be as healthy and vigorous as Joe Biden? This is a man who, on his recent tour of Ireland, very friendly terrain for him, had to be led around by his son, had to be uh, a... Uh, his son explain what the questions meant. Uh, when he got back to America, he promptly forgot he'd ever been to Ireland, and it was a seven-year-old girl or whoever it was who had to remind him again at a thing with they 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 only expose him to school children and school children's questions, and he still can't handle those. There's something very weird going on, you know. Uh, it's part of a general trend, I would say. You know, Rishi Sunak, we don't really know who got him installed as prime minister, but it's very interesting. He makes no, uh, in ways that are unusual in the modern era, he makes no attempt to connect with the people at all. You know, Boris is a complete poser and a buffoon and an opportunist. But he, but you know, he's out there pumping the flesh and uh, greeting people and all the rest. David Cameron, who I think I called an oleaginous creep, uh, to Kathy Gingell again. He was he was doing the same. Now in the American context, a lot of all this stuff, you know, uh, going out there meeting the people, was actually cooked up by uh, the American system. And Joe Biden is sort of. 
invisible. And people have digested this. You know, nobody understands when they go back to the 1930s how the press could agree not to cover uh, FDR in his wheelchair so that the American people didn't know about it. But they're doing exactly the same to Joe Biden. What's interesting, too, is that Fetterman, you know, Fetterman on live, uh, who's the senator from Pennsylvania, basically uh, looks like uh, Frankenstein's monster from the Mel Brooks, the uh, Putin on the Ritz. Uh, That was uh, Fetterman's first thing. And don't, yeah, don't tell me, oh, that's a bit insensitive. Well, no, it's not. Uh, America is a nation of 350 million people or whatever it is, you know, 450 million if you include all the illegals, and only 100 of them get to be senators. And so one, uh, we're expected to put up with a guy who's had a stroke and cannot function. He asked some completely incomprehensible question to do with one of these bank failures uh, the other day, and no, the the bank president sitting there couldn't, you know, couldn't figure out what the question. Is. Then we have Diane Feinstein, who, you know, Joe Biden was only in Ireland for a few days, and then he forgot about it. Diane Feinstein the other day forgot she hadn't been in Washington for three months or two and a half months or whatever it is. You know, it's now someone is doing their jobs. You know, I, I, in preparation for the man case, I watched again that moment of um, from a couple of years ago at a hearing chaired by Ted Cruz at the U.S. Senate, where Dr. Judith Curry and I pushed back against Senator Markey, an idiot senator from Massachusetts. And, you know, a characteristic senator in that he's the creature of his minders. You know, he can't think he can't think for two minutes on his own. So when you're sitting there in the U.S. Senate, you're just watching these people being fed tiny little bits of piece of paper by their vast entourages who are sitting behind them because they can't function without them. But now, but there is at least, with even with a bird brain like Markey, there is at least a semi-functioning bird brain sitting in front of the staffers. With Biden, with Fetterman, with Feinstein, there's not. So the question then becomes, who actually is running the country? Uh, Eric Dale says, Mark, what are your thoughts on the apparent fact that our elected officer... Oh, well, here we go. I should have read this one first. Uh, officials clearly are not in charge of their own offices or votes, but someone behind the scenes. Between John Fetterman, Diane Feinstein and Joe Biden, these people are clearly not in charge of their own offices, but someone or some group who never stood for election is. It seems that our permanent bureaucracy merely take the elected legislature as a comments box anyway. What is the state of self-government in the United States? Yeah, nothing very good. Nothing very good. Um... It's weird, and but but you notice, as I said, you notice. I think the uh, uh, the Fetterman thing was televised live on C-SPAN or whatever, and then that was it. No one at ABC or CBS or NBC or CNN wants to show that footage, so it just goes away. 
Scott Scherzer from Miami Beach says, Dear Mark, what I find most depressing about these past few years is how little the truth seems to matter to so many. The lies spread by the political class, the media, the medical establishment, and so many other institutions is met with a collective shrug. There is no longer any shame in being a known prevaricator. Have we any chance of reclaiming any semblance of a traditional America if the truth continues to be held in such low regard? Looking forward to sharing some laughs and tears with my fellow club members come July. That will be when we're on the Mark Stein cruise, uh, sailing the Adriatic uh, and enjoying uh, some of that uh, fabulous Dalmatian bavanda as we uh, get to Croatia and uh, then uh, move on to uh, Montenegro. Look, we're, we're, we're engaged in something that's actually on a grander scale uh, than the uh, than than the Soviets attempted. Uh, for example, I, despite Dylan Mulvaney, some uh, swimwear thing, I've forgotten which swimwear thing it is now, but my dear friend Leilani <laughs> was tweeting about it rather vividly, actually, yesterday morning. Um, and uh, so this swimwear thing where it's ladies swimwear, but it's being modeled by a man. So the man has a little more of a swell in uh, the relative position at the top of his thighs than a woman would. And so just think about this. As I said, the whole point of Soviet propaganda is to force you to live with the lie. They don't care whether you believe it or not. The point is that you have to uh, live with it. And uh, But as I said, they never did anything uh, like we do on this scale. So in other words, 10 minutes after Dylan Mulvaney has tanked uh, the Anheuser-Busch stock uh, uh, over Bud over the Bud Light ads, trying to using trannies to sell beer to beery, blokey, sporty blokes sitting in bars, and uh, it's it's insulting. But the point is to force you to live with the lie, to accept Dylan Mulvaney, who is a racket. Uh, to accept Dylan Mulvaney as a woman. Now, once you, once that, this is where the whole transgender thing is interesting. Now, most people, I used to get this when I'd bring it up on Rush. People say, oh, this is, nobody really believes it. No, that may be the case that in the privacy of your home, you don't believe in it, but you will have noticed that if you uh, say it outside the privacy of your own home, you'll lose your job, you'll lose your livelihood, it's over for you. So that's why, uh, you know, it's an entire culture. When, when, when middle school girls are saying they're boys and when, uh, and, and when guys, big, butch, hairy guys are saying, no, we're female swimmers, uh, there are lies on every front, and there's nothing other uh, than lies. Steve from Manhattan says, Mark, two weeks ago, representatives of Joe Biden and General Thoroughly Modern Millie 
announced that one of their intrepid drones had killed a major al-Qaeda leader in Syria. Two anonymous Biden Millie reps yesterday informed the Washington Post that actually the deceased 56-year-old sheep herder and father of 10 children, Lotfi Hassan Misto, was the inadvertent victim of the U.S. Hellfire missile. Question, is it a nice touch that American missiles self-identify as Hellfire? You know, this whole thing where you just randomly kill civilians, like those photogenic moppets droned by uh, the U.S. Uh, on, on the way out of Kabul, a year or two back. They would be impressive if it was part of the collateral damage of victory. But the fact that it's it comes in the midst of complete global humiliation makes it just pathetic. I was astonished. I, I loathe the BBC, but the BBC actually had the uncle of those poor kids on uh, I think the following day, explaining that they, the guy had nothing to do with anything. They just killed all his kids. I was astonished that uh, even the liberal press, uh, like the New York Times, waited weeks before they acknowledged it. You know, again, the, the antiseptic drone thing seems very convenient, you know, because let's, let's face it, you know, once we actually do the shock and awe and it all get and we decide to start occupying countries, you know it's not going to end well. So why don't we just drone them from Florida or the British Indian Ocean Territory and uh, and that way, you know, who, who actually who gives a crap whether it's an Al Qaeda operative or a some fifty uh, six year old sheep herder? As long as we can pass him off as an Al Qaeda operative, that's straight out of Orwell. <laughs> And there are there are a lot of sheep herders, and they're easy to find because they're out herding their sheep. Uh, you know, again, again, the rubrite. I'd like I'd like the rubrite to get serious. I've been calling now for some fifteen years for a fundamental rethinking of the American way of war, and uh, and nobody wants to. <laughs> Uh, nobody on the right wants to actually do anything. So we have thoroughly modern Millie. Why is he still there? You know, Chris Davis says, Hi, Mark. How many banks does it take to send out distress flares before we officially declare another global banking crisis? Central banks are still raising interest rates, hammering residential loan books, and COVID has successfully put its wrecking ball through banks' commercial lending portfolios. It is surely only a matter of when. Your thoughts, please. Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier this hearing with the bank president. president. Actually, the bank president being grilled by Fetterman is, is, is really the perfect encapsulation of where we're at. The difference between now and 2008 is that the fundamentals were a lot sounder in 2008. It was a, you know, people talked about banksters and all the rest of it because it was a bank problem. Under, if once the banks, if the banks hadn't created a problem, the fundamentals of the economy were quite sound. That is not the case now. And that is why nobody is declaring a global banking crisis, because we have a much broader economic 
crisis. Uh, we, we have uh, double-digit inflation in most parts of the Western world. They're trying to cover it up by redefining inflation. We have you know, millions and millions of closed businesses that are never going to reopen. We have basic tourist destinations that have never recovered from COVID. And we have this this weirdly disrupted food supply where basic supermarket items from three years ago now cannot be found. Very difficult to get hold of. So that's the thing. They're not going to the the a the banking crisis of 2008 was a banking crisis the banking crisis today is part of an everything crisis and that's why they don't want to uh, don't want to uh, declare it. Tristan says, Greetings, Mark. I thoroughly enjoy all that is Stein, including the dynamic Stein theme music. Who is your band of musicians? And would you consider releasing a CD of your show's tunes? There are thousands upon thousands of us who need you and your very important work. Keep recovering. Well, we really basically have two bands. I mean, in the sense that they're two groups I've worked with for a long time. We have our little Montreal group, who are the ones we use when we do things on this side of the Atlantic. That's led by uh, Eric Harding and uh, Michel Bertium, who's a terrific drummer. I, th- I think that we had them on TV just a few days ago. Um, uh, Michel is absolutely fantastic drummer, and I, I just, you know, every, everyone who ever has to sing with him or play with him loves him. Uh, and then we have our uh, London group, which is a little bigger, and Kevin Amos, our musical di- Kevin Amos, our musical director, he heads that. And uh, Kevin is uh, our fabulous arranger when we when we do these various numbers. And the band are full of people I've worked with for years, like Jeff Eels, who um, is our pianist, and and indeed our backing singers, and Claire McInerney, who's the piccolo uh, piccolo player and also plays the saxophone. Uh, but I think of her particularly with the piccolo from our Christmas glowworm thing, a couple of Christmas shows back. And then we have. Uh, uh, the the ladies, the backing singers, who say, I go back an awful long... I don't want to be ungallant <laughs> about about the ladies, but, uh, you know, I... Uh, uh, but I'll just say about the musicians, and you can figure out whether that includes... These guys I've been uh, with for 30 years, so they're a permanent group. And the music on the show... That's Kevin's arrangement of a one of the songs uh, we did uh, a few years ago uh, that Kevin and I wrote uh, called uh, Nine Lives. And, and we've done it in... De- we've got different arrangements of it because actually uh, Kevin's tune, he did things that... What I love about Kevin is he always improves things. So it's called Nine Lives. And then I think it's in the middle section. Yeah, it's in the middle section. It's actually he's got a circle of ninths uh, in there as we're talking about the nine. It's clever. clever. I mean, I, like there's only one in 20 million people who appreciate that, but it's clever. Thank you for that question, Tristan. And maybe we will put out a CD of music from the Mark Stein show. That's uh, if anyone still buys CDs. But that's a very nice thought of you. 
and um, I'm happy you enjoy it, and certainly a lot of other people do. I tell you what, we'll have a little bit more music for those, and a little bit more musical homesickness. Uh, and this time, you don't have to be Dalmatian. Uh, to feel the pangs with this one. This song was performed in public for the first time two centuries ago this month. That's to say, May 1823, at the premiere of the opera Clary or the Maid of Milan. Clary or the Maid of Milan. Music by Henry Bishop, who's English. Words by John Howard Payne, who's American, so a nice Anglo-American hands-across-the-sea vibe on the authorial credits. Clary opened uh, 200 years ago at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, and this was the breakout hit from the score, the big take-home tune. On a colossal scale, it instantly sold 100,000 copies and never looked back. It's among the most famous songs of the 19th century and likely... The most sung song of the 19th century, because it's the one that sentimental moments on the back porch people would uh, lapse into. And it lingered on well into the 20th century with recordings by Alma Gluck, Deanna Durbin, Vera Lynn, Tennessee Annie Ford and Bing Crosby. Mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. Bye. 
Bing Crosby with Victor Young's orchestra and a song that celebrates its 200th birthday this month. Music by Sir Henry Bishop, words by John Howard Payne. Sir Henry made a fortune from that song, Mr. Payne, not so much. As the Georgia historian Lucien Lamar Knight wrote, while his money lasted... He was a prince of bohemians, but it never lasted quite as long as he hoped. He conducted a romance with Shelley's widow, Mary, author of Frankenstein, but the infatuation died when he realised she was only using him to get to his friend, Washington Irving. John Howard Payne's pad was no place like home to Mary Shelley, just a useful stop on the way to Washington Irving's joint. There's no place like Stein Online, your cyber home. Rick McGuinness on the movie beat, Tal Backman on the Backman beat. The Mark Stein Show returns on Monday. Stay safe, stay free, stay well. Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins and Elvis Presley. Take us home, guys. Is there no place like home? Like home. Well, now I say home, home, sweet home. Reserved.